Hey, everybody. Thanks for tearing yourselves away from the NCAA tournament to give us a listen. And, by the way, if your bracket's busted, don't forget this shop note. You can clean Sharpie off non-porous surfaces with toothpaste. Apply toothpaste liberally and scrub with water. You can erase your busted bracket from existence or, you know, just change a pick here and there. It's up to you. I'm not telling you what to do. Anyways, today's show is a smorgasbord of other things you might be interested in this March. You better believe cops are going to be out in full force this weekend with St. Paddy's rolling around. Ezra Dyer recently went to the NYPD's fleet division, and he tells us what's worth knowing about how cops keep all those cars in one piece. Then, speaking to St. Paddy's, Matt Allen and James Lynch swing by to explain what to know to avoid being the worst kind of reveler, also known as a plastic patty. Finally, after all that Guinness, I know I'm going to be ready for some good clean living. So I called up Dr. Marvin Pritz from Cornell School of Integrated Plant Science to explain how to get a garden going after all the loopy weather we've been having this winter. I mean, here in New York at least. And finally, on today's testing table, in a real heartwarming segment, Peter Martin teaches me to jump rope. Welcome to this week's most useful podcast ever. So I have here now Ezra Dyer, Popular Mechanics, Autos Editor, and as you came all the way to New York just to get picked up by the cops, is that right? I did. I uh, I got to see some police cars with their lights on and for once not have a heart attack about it. Uh, at the New York PD Fleet Services Division, which is out in Queens, gigantic garage where they uh, they deal with keeping their 6,000 vehicles uh, on the road at all times. 6,000? Yeah, they've got new cars coming in every day and old ones getting stripped and retired every day. And it's a constant cycle and they've got cars, trucks, you know, a couple of uh, MRAPs from Afghanistan that they, uh-huh. that they told me, if you ever see these on the streets of New York, you should get out of town. Did they have one of those parked next to one of the smart car, NYPD cars? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't far away. You know, they, uh, those guys go with whatever works, not whatever is uh, macho or seems like it should be the thing that police would get. So they kind of, they seem like they're willing to try anything from the smart car to, uh, you know, post-Hurricane Sandy, they've got a few jacked-up trucks that can carry a Zodiac on the back. <laughs> and then they've got, you know, um, mopeds, basically, that they can ride around. And, you know, if there's, a, if there's a spontaneous protest that's moving through the city that people need to be herded a little bit, they use those scooters like sheepdogs. But they, they generally tend to go for the, uh, it seems like the least heavy-duty thing they can get away with. Okay, so it's not just like a, it's not just a sea of, like, Caprice Classics. No, and uh, they also try to buy a lot of different cars. You know, I figured it would be all Ford Tauruses or all Chargers or something like that. Uh, you know, the ease of fixing something. If if uh, if you need a Fender, well, they're all the same car, so you've got the Fender. Mm-hmm. In the 90s, when they had just all Crown Vicks, there was a frame recall, and all of a sudden, all of their cars are recalled at once. So oh, man. Now, they've got, now they've got Tauruses, they've got um, the Explorers, they were auditioning, auditioning a Chevy Traverse, which was interesting because there is no such thing as a police package Chevy Traverse. But like I said, they, they figure they're going to give it a whirl. That's interesting. Okay, so like, what's, their, what's their philosophy with picking the right car for your given job? I think that they just put things out into service in various precincts because each precinct is different in terms of the wear and tear that it puts on a vehicle. And they see how it goes. They see what breaks. And, um, you know, whether, whether a vehicle will work, if you slap a skid plate on the bottom and uh, run it out there for 42 months, how's it going to fare? You know, like it surprised me, the Charger did not do well, yet the Ford Fusion Hybrid is everywhere in the New York fleet because, again, you slap a skid plate on the bottom, 
and uh, that thing will run and run and run and be happy about it in the city. It's a, it's a different, it's kind of a unique situation in New York because, you know, it's urban. You're not going high speeds, but you're just driving all the time. And it's also horrible weather, so they've been going to all-wheel drive and four-wheel drive whenever possible. So that's a factor, too. Like, can they get a car with all-wheel drive or four-wheel drive so they don't have a situation like they had uh, a few years ago where before they made that switch, I think there was a big blizzard and they had, you know, 900 911 calls backed up because they couldn't get their cars out. That's amazing. And, you know, I guess that makes sense. I was so surprised there were 6,000 vehicles, but those cars are everywhere and they're just constantly running. They have, you know, some some places in the city there are 24-hour posts where there has to be a manned police car at all times, like on the uh, GW Bridge. So on those posts, they tend to put hybrids, I guess, because they, they oh, run cooler. They can, Yeah, they can just sit there for 24 hours, whereas... Uh, if you idle in Impala for 24 hours, apparently, you, uh, you will have some overheating problems, so they tell me. Um, I'm curious, uh, well, first of all, if their shop was pretty much like any other shop, which is huge, but then also, um, if, uh, if they're salvaging, like, are there certain parts that are really easy to salvage? Like, did you learn anything from seeing what kind of stuff they were, they were taking off and using to replace parts? The deal is, they don't get any money back when a car goes to auction. So if they've got a car that's running but a little bit ragged and say it could get 1500 bucks at an auction, they will just strip everything they can use off of it and send a, uh, a naked shell back to the city and say, there you go, guys, uh, because they can reuse those parts on their cars that are still running. And they can get cars back on the road faster after they get hit. And I mean, car, New York City police cars are getting banged up all the time. Yeah. Uh, and just replacing parts that break. They don't have to wait. They don't have to go to the dealership. They do their own warranty work. Uh, they have their own insurance adjusters, so they can get a car in and out in the same day uh, with a bulletproof door back on it. You know, it, even if something gets T-boned, so it's uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty slick setup in there. The parts that seem to get salvaged most often are, you know, apparently the ones that get busted up the most often. So door panels, uh, glass. That's all stuff that stuff that's easy to replace. Wheels and tires, the skid plates, the uh, you know, seats, because the seats get torn up from guys getting in and out of them all day while wearing a gun belt. <laughs> and uh, right. they told me, like, still, you know, cop car seats are one of the toughest things to design. And nobody is really getting it right. Even the Fusion hybrids, they swap in their own seats that have um, basically no bolsters on them to make it easy to get in and out. And you still, you look at the cars they're stripping and the seats are all torn up because that's just what happens. You're basically accelerating the duty cycle of the car. You know, you're putting it on Fast forward times 10, and uh, things get torn up. Also, incidentally, in case anyone's wondering, the best seats were the, uh, the Plymouth Grand Fury. What? <laughs> That's what they told me. I said, what was the best cop car? And they all looked at each other and said, oh, the Grand Fury. Grand Fury was great. I had great, you know, the seats, the, the seats never tore. The seats were great, and it didn't break down, and it was rugged. Everybody loved the Grand Fury, so uh, Chrysler. Make that again. The New York City police would be happy. Unbelievable. I got to see the roof where they have the undercover cars. And, um, you know, I can't really tell you much about the undercover cars because they just look like any car you would see on the street. And they rotate them out all the time so that the perps don't become familiar with a particular car. So uh, they just had, you know, for example, an anonymous Ford Taurus. But they also had a Toyota Camry 
New York City police cab, completely done up with, uh, you know, all the appropriate library and everything, except it was a cop car. So oh, that's dirty. Just, yeah, keep that in mind. There's a certain percentage of um, cabs on the street in New York that are not really cabs at all. That's amazing. Thanks, man. No problem. Right now I have James Lynch, Matt Allen. Are either of you guys Irish in any small proportion? Yeah, I'm actually mostly Irish. Mostly Irish? Yeah, Lynch is pretty Irish. I was very close to being named Seamus. Really? Yeah, which is Gaelic. That could have changed your whole life. Oh, yeah. I think being able to say I was almost named Seamus and I'm Irish is probably better than being named Seamus. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not uh, actually Irish anyway, but I definitely had British ancestors that, like, took a few trips to Northern Ireland. Um, Not sure what they did. Not sure if I want to know. Yeah. I don't want to know either. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry that you had to share this painful part of your history. (laughs) I don't don't know what it is. Ignorance is bliss here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, so there's a lot of questions I have about St. Paddy's. One of them is, and Matt, this is why you're here. There is exactly one Irish beer that I'm aware of. That's Guinness. Are there more? Why aren't there more? Guinness is definitely the, the largest Irish beer, not just in the States, uh, but like over the world. There's some like 2 billion Guinnesses drank every year. It's astounding what? number. Yeah, astounding amount of beer uh, that goes out. There's this sort of, there's like this lore that Guinness tastes better the closer you get to Dublin or something, mm-hmm. I guess. Is that true? I would say any beer tastes better closest to the source. And the Guinness we get in the U.S. is brewed in Dublin. Um, and so by not having to ship it over an ocean, uh, there is a likelihood it will taste better. Okay. Do they brew it anywhere else? Oh, yeah. They, they brew it in something like nearly 50 countries around oh, really? the world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is on every continent that drinks beer. It's a great beer. Yeah. It's a great Here, beer. Here's a question, though. Mm. Why aren't we making black and tans on this show? Why aren't we? Um, well... First off, I uh, believe black and tan term is actually offensive. Right. I think you shouldn't say that. But yeah. Is we, offensive? Yeah. I only found that out while at this job. What? I don't remember if it was you or somebody mm-hmm. else, but I said that and I was chastised. Offensive to who? Uh, to Irish. Man, then I... You I, should be so offended my right My Irish... Now. The Casements, Lynch's, and Murphy's have some learning to do then. You're like, no, I can say black and tan. I'm Irish. Uh, well, what is it? Okay, hold on. Why, why is it offensive? Uh, black and tans were basically a group of... If I'm remembering this correctly... Uh, a British, I don't know if they were hooligans, militia, or what, uh, that like physically kept the Irish in line. Wow. Yeah, they were not nice people. Uh, so, better question, why aren't we making half and halves? Half? Okay. Not like, as satisfying of a like name. Like my, no, I say. I'm no, so but, surprised though. I'm going to have to send some emails real quick. Um, so, last question on this subject mm-hmm, before mm-hmm. you switch to the disgraced Irishman over here. Oh, oh wow. That's... <laughs> Uh, are there other Irish beers that you particularly like that you'd recommend? Yeah, yeah. Um, you also see Murphy's and Beamish are, are two similar stouts. Um, I believe they're from Cork, uh, owned by the same company, uh, and a little bit stronger than Guinness. Both are delicious. But then you're also starting to see the Irish craft beer scene boom. Um, one we can kind of get, well, we can get in the States, and it's kind of Irish, is Breckenridge Brewing in Colorado did a collaboration with Boundary Brewing oh. uh, to make a nitrogenated Irish stout that's hmm. under 5%. Uh, it's a little more, like, heavy on the toast than the, the more, like, black and burnt flavor you get at Guinness, but yeah. it's still delicious. Check it out. Um, yeah. Um, all right. Well, James, you're here because there was a, uh, there was a faux pas. Yeah, out of the Trump administration, only one. Only, they have not apologized for it yet either. So yeah, the Trump 
campaign put out a Make America Great Again green hat in honor of St. Patrick's Day. On the back of this green Make America Great Again hat, they put a four-leaf clover, which I uh, got a lot of press because it's not actually an Irish symbol. So I reached out to thankfully, uh, a professor of history at Notre Dame, seemed like a great place to go, who right. actually responded while he's on vacation. So Dr. Rory, Ra- Rory, Dr. Rory Rappel, thank you. So <laughs> he explained that a four-leaf clover is just a good luck symbol in English-speaking countries and that the three-leaf shamrock, it's a different plant, and, well, I won't ex- we'll get we'll let you guess what it represents but it's three leaves and it represents something in irish culture heritage history and and then he said that the this use of the four leaf clover as representation for saint patrick's day is part of the promotion of what he called the plastic patty uh irish identity which i've never heard this term before i've never heard that and it has a wikipedia page so you know it's real and plastic patty is just people who aren't Irish or maybe have a, a, a small Irish lineage or basically using St. Patrick's Day and Irish heritage as an excuse to get really drunk. So do we want to guess what the the three, the leaves, three leaves of the uh, shamrock represent? Do you know? Oh, I know very little on this. It's not beer. <laughs> um, so this is actually something that I like was taught growing up. Oh. Um, because it's, it has to do with the Catholic Church and St. Patrick came over to Ireland and to teach the Irish people about uh, Catholicism, he used, now this is this is basically a myth and it doesn't really come up anywhere until I think the 19th century, but this is the story, yeah. is that he used the shamrock and its three leaves to represent the three parts of the Holy Trinity, being the Father, the Son, oh. and the Holy Spirit. That makes sense. Yeah, and so it became this big symbol. I mean, Ireland's obviously a really Catholic country and apparently in Celtic uh, history, like three is a really lucky number too, so it was just easy to transition into the clover and, and being lucky and all that. Wait, I think you buried the lead though. St. Patrick is not Irish? Oh no, he thinks from Wales. Yeah. What? Yeah. This whole holiday is a sham. All right, so joining me right now is Dr. Marvin Pritz, professor of horticulture at uh, Cornell University's School of Integrative Plant Science. Uh, Dr. Pritz, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. So we just got hit by this huge snowstorm here in New York, and I guess we're in the city, you're upstate, but the few of us who came into work yesterday were talking about uh, what kind of havoc this is wreaking on our gardens, or or for those of us who have yards in New York City, it's not a given, um, on our plants. And I was hoping you could maybe talk talk me through a little bit uh, of what you need to know to take care of, whether it's you you know the herb garden on my fire escape or somebody who has an actual yard with more trees and bountiful plants. Um, what is there to know about a winter like this one that's had this sort of crazy cycle of spring temperatures in January and then a snowstorm halfway through March? First thing, the snowstorm itself is probably a blessing. Snow has a lot of insulating properties. Oh. So when you get a, a layer of snow over the ground, it insulates underneath, keeps plants relatively warm. So it's actually very protective. And fruit growers... Um, People with perennial plants love to have snow cover. They would prefer to have it all winter long if possible. The damage happens when the snow melts, and then you get winds that, with cold temperatures because that really pulls heat out of the soil when the wind blows over it and lowers the temperature in the soil, and that's when we get our damage huh. with those plants. The other 
factor in this winter, though, is the fluctuating temperatures. And, you know, plants that are above the ground, uh, say woody plants and so forth, whenever uh, they go into the winter, plants have uh, something called a chilling requirement. They have to experience so many hours of cold temperatures before they'll break dormancy and start to grow again. Oh, interesting. So, and that varies quite a lot. But just take a typical fruit tree, say, like an apple. So it goes into the winter, and if it warms up in December, the plant will still stay dormant because the chilling hours haven't been fulfilled yet. And even if it warms up in early January, it may not ever break dormancy because it hasn't gotten enough cold. But once that cold requirement is filled, then the plant is ready to respond to the warm weather. Interesting. So when we had warm weather in February, a lot of the plants started to wake up because they had their chilling period fulfilled. Some plants wake up very quickly, others more slowly. And the plants that warmed up quickly are the ones that are most likely to get damaged this time of the year when cold weather returns. So when you say when you say damage, like how how much damage is this? Like all the fruit will die, the the tree will die, or it just won't be as the yields won't be as good. Yeah, that's a really good question. So what a lot of people don't realize is that, say, let's take an apple tree for example. If all those apples flowers would open up and set fruit, the apples that would result would be very very small. So if you get a nice winter, a nice spring, all the flowers open, they all get pollinated. A grower will go in and intentionally knock off about 90, 95% of the flowers in that tree because they want the flowers that are left to be able to grow big and not have competition with all the other flowers. So if we get um, a damage in our apple buds, like at this time of the year, and we see 50% of the apple flowers killed, we say, good, that means there's less work in springtime. We have fewer flowers to thin. Unless you get almost 100% damage you'll get some crop yeah okay okay so then the flip side of this is uh let's say you don't have anything planted but you're planning to plant a garden you know this week if you know there's bad weather coming how do you decide when it's when it's time like when it's actually we're entering the period where it's going to be warm yeah that's (laughs) that's a good question too at least for vegetables there's generally two categories of vegetables those that are considered um cold hardy vegetables and those that are considered warm season vegetables. So you have these cool season and warm season vegetables. So what you do is you look for the frost-free day in your area. And that's, historically, they have records of that. And where I live, it's like May 20th. So we can plant cool season vegetables before May 20th. As soon as we can work the ground, uh, we can start planting our cool season vegetables. And even if it freezes, we have a little bit of room to play because they can tolerate some cold weather, and we, or we can put a row cover over them and get them through those cold nights. If you're planting a warm season vegetable, then you need to wait until after the frost free day. day. And then even then you're taking a little bit of a chance because, you know, that's an average. And sometimes you get a late frost after the average. But then again, you can pull out your row cover, put that over. Uh, they have The other thing that works really well is, they have these things called walls of water. It's like you fill up these plastic tubes with water and lay it next to your plants, and that water radiates heat at night and keeps your plants warm and keeps them from freezing. 
Oh, just because water has like a high specific heat. So exactly. It... Huh. Exactly. That's yeah. cool. The row covers, can you get that just kind of like your local nursery will have it, or is it harder to find than that? Uh, a lot of local nurseries are now carrying it. It used to be a little bit harder to find, but now it's pretty common. Okay. So two questions about when you talk about uh, if you have a frost. You're using the term frost. I know I've heard the term hard freeze. Is there a difference? Are those the same thing? Yeah. So you can get a frost without the temperature falling below 32. Your car will get ice in the windshield even though it's 38, 37 out. And so that's considered sort of a light frost. When we, call, when we say we get a hard frost, that means the temperature has fallen below 32. And it's really, you know, everything's turning to ice, not just on the surface, the moisture in the surface, but everything's freezing up. Yeah. And that's sort of the boundary line between, you know, a light frost and a hard frost. Okay. And then the other thing I wanted to ask was, uh, you know, I know I've seen these maps of uh, hardiness zones. You know, when you go to the nursery to buy plants, you'll see that. Yep. Are those defined based on this um, frost-free day? What are those defined based no, on? No, those are defined on the basis of the, the average lowest temperature that that area ever experiences in winter. Oh, okay. So it's pretty much based exclusively on the lowest temperature expected in that region. And so you can have like two areas with zone five, but they can have quite different times of the last frost or the first frost or the length of the growing season because it's just based on how cold it gets in the winter. Okay. Are those zones changing, by the way, with, with climate change? Yes, they just had to revise the, the climate zone maps a few years ago because things were warming up. And so people that used to be in zone four found themselves in zone five. And one other thing I'd just like to say about nature, like even if you have a cold winter and some of your buds, your, even your vegetative buds are damaged, oftentimes there are secondary and even tertiary buds that stay dormant, that never grow as long as the primary bud is growing. But if that primary bud is damaged, then those secondary and tertiary buds will start to grow. So it's sort of a backup plan. Oh, that's amazing. And do you have to do any kind of pruning or anything to help that, or will the plant just does it itself? The plant does it itself, yeah. Well, Dr. Pritz, thanks, thanks so much for your time. This is great, and uh, good luck digging out up there. Thank you. So for today's testing table, we're going to look at a jump rope with Peter Martin. And Peter, I'm starting to feel like you have just a whole gym of smart workout equipment. I, I do, but only as of recently, because um, we are putting together a smart everything package for the May issue that we're working on right now. And I maybe foolishly agreed to try all the workout equipment that was connected to your phone or had any sort of electronics <laughs> in it. It's been kind of fun. Um, well, the sculpt thing was really cool, but my question is just like, what what do you need to add to a jump rope? I don't, <laughs> I'm not really sure what's lacking. That was kind of why we grabbed this one, because it seemed a little strange. So this it's a company called Tangram, and it's called the Smart Rope Pure. They okay. used to just have a smart rope, and that had LEDs in the rope that in front of you, because it's moving so quickly and catch it, you could actually see the count of jumps on the rope That's in front of you. That's kind of cool. Like those things you could buy at Disneyland where you like yeah. swing it around and it tells you like <laughs> Happy New Year or something. Yeah. Um, I think that was 100 bucks. This is a cheaper version of that that doesn't have the LEDs because that probably adds some weight to the rope, and mm -hmm. it's... It's a fun gimmick at first, and then you realize you have no reason to use it. Yeah. Um, so this is the Smart Rope Pure. It's uh, 60 bucks, and 
it basically just puts a counter in the jump rope for you. Um, and then you have the app that it's connected to. And it, it's kind of silly if you're just throwing it into a workout. But yeah. if you don't do anything and want to start working out, jumping rope is one of the best things you can do for yourself because you will be beat in two minutes. Um, and so this thing actually runs you through how you should work out with a jump rope. So it'll give you interval training where... So there's like fully a method to, to the jump rope. I am, I'm a, yeah. I am not a jump roper. <laughs> do you jump rope regularly? I, I do as part of gym classes sometimes. Okay. Um, Jackie would make fun of me, but we do it a lot. Yeah. So, but so this thing through the app, it'll give you these interval workouts. It looks at how old you are, how much you weigh, and it gives you a basic count for the day. So yeah. mine was 1,800 jumps a day. Which is a lot. So it seems like with this and with the sculpt and looked at it, for the smart workout equipment, it seems like one of the big benefits is that you can tell it a little bit more about your body and then it can sort of tailor things or give you better advice. Is that the, yeah. is that the feeling you're getting? Yeah, although it has no idea what shape you're in. You know, someone of the same age, the same weight could be jacked or yeah. you could just be a couch potato and you're being told to do the same amount of workout, uh, same amount of jumps in a day. But it also has, so it has interval training on here that if you're a beginner, you tell it, and so it'll have you do, let's see. So if you pull it up, you tell it you're a beginner, you could do 50 sets of three. And so it tells you to jump 50 times, take a 60-second break, 50 times, 60-second break, 50 times. Then okay. You're, then you're done. And so you can progress, and eventually the, the advanced levels, they've got five, sets of 500 times five with just the 60-second break in between. Yeah. And, I mean, that would be That nuts. sounds brutal. Yeah. I'm not even confident I could jump rope well. I think the last time I jumped rope, it was maybe when I was in high school. But I know my dad had a lot of random pieces of workout equipment that he never used. But one time I can remember vividly him breaking out the jump rope. I remember seeing my dad jump rope was hilarious to me as a kid. But so that was like kind of around. So I know I picked it up a few times, but it's been a long time. Is it hard? As as adult, Kevin, would I find it hard if I hadn't tried this in a long time? You, yes, for the first five minutes getting the cadence down is what's hard actually doing it is not that hard because you if you do it wrong and a lot of us when we jump at least when you jump as kids you jump once in between every turn of the rope so people you jump over the rope then people hop to get the beat down then they jump over the rope again and so you'll notice it just looks like people bouncing yeah. in between when the rope's not really spinning around under them that is embarrassing at the gym <laughs> it just shows that you haven't jumped rope as an adult and it's not going to give you the cardio workout that jumping rope where every time you jump the rope is going under your feet yeah um so it's it's important to get over that. So I think that takes five minutes. Just in terms, it's like like a patting your head while you rub your stomach thing. Yeah. Once it clicks, you're fine. Yeah. Um, but that would be a little awkward. Could you teach me? We could try. We All could right. clear some stuff out of the podcast room and give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, this is probably not an ideal gym space, but you know, it's just a jump rope. Okay, so while we do that, we've got a quick message for you from the world of podcasting. Be right back. Here at the most useful podcast ever, we're always looking for small hacks and tips that can make your life better. Well, here's one. Tell your friends about a podcast you love. I promise it only makes your life better when everybody you know is also listening to good stuff. You can tell them about this one, but, you know, others are cool too. And in fact, this month, those of us here at Popular Mechanics are joining our fellow podcasters at Panoply and other folks around the world in sharing the good word about podcasts. And it'd be great if you would help. By the way, if your friends don't know how to get podcasts, just show them. In fact, we're launching a new homepage this month, and we're going to have a handy guide showing you just how and where you can get podcasts. And finally, here's the key part. When you're done, go online and tell us what you've recommended with the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. Not like the tool, T-R-Y pod. Okay, back to the show. So we cleaned up the podcast room. Peter Martin is going to teach me to jump rope. And we brought in Katie McDonald just to provide some color commentary uh, for the podcast listeners who don't want to miss this 
it's kind of a life lesson, I guess. It's definitely. Yeah. Um, and also, they probably wouldn't have been able to see you jumping rope. Yeah, that so would be a problem. Katie's their eyes. So I don't know what's bouncier, Kevin or his hair. So he, like, bounces on his toes in between each loop. Um, he actually, I mean, he's made quite a few loops. Yeah. Like, you haven't tripped or... or this is a good workout. <laughs> well, that's, you know, and what... So now, now do it. Just do like 10 do without the, doing the, the double length. jump in the middle. Yeah. Okay. It's really hard to start. I think that's the hardest part. Yeah. Like, Aren't you supposed you to jump rope like you're skipping? Little, you can go back and forth, foot to foot. Oh. People do that to not get tired. Oh, okay. I never jump rope. You should. It's really good for you. Okay, so now he's going a little faster. Um, yeah, you definitely moving He's And he's also <laughs> like pounding the floor with his feet, like flat footed. Be on the balls of your feet? Yeah, you want to be on. He needs okay, to. to Peter is really suggesting to go on the balls of your feet as opposed to flat footed as you Kevin. You don't want to be able to hear you slamming into the ground. You want this to be very. I want to see you do it. Okay, Peter. Whoa. Then you, and then when you get good at it, it's you're better at it than I am. When you get good at it, you do it twice. Except I feel like Peter. It has better posture when doing yeah, it. Yeah, you are much more straight up he, and down. He, his back is straight up and down. Kevin was a little bit more hunched over. Oh my God! What are you doing with your hands? <laughs> okay, so I did a little better than I thought I would. I think you really a, did. That's a credit to your teaching. <laughs> um, you, that, what are the, what are the like the main points to doing this right? Um, I mean, the first thing is getting a jump rope that's the right length for you. Because uh, it's gonna, it's very hard to jump with a short rope or a long rope. So to, to find the right measurement for you, just step on it with one foot, hold both the handles up, and they should go right to your armpits, basically. There's, like the handles are at your armpits. The handle should hit your armpits. Okay. Um, you wanna, you only wanna see your hands. You wanna look straight ahead when you're jumping. Don't try to look at your feet because that's gonna screw you up a lot. <laughs> um, well, you weren't doing that, but some people will. Your elbows should be tight against your side, spinning your hands as little as possible. Okay. Um, and then jump as little as you can. Also, <laughs> okay. so you're you're trying to you're trying to keep your body fairly still. Yeah, yeah. Um, you really are probably jumping an inch off the ground, two inches off the ground. Yeah, I was kind of like bending my knees a little bit and pulling my feet. Just like good posture, jump very. You know, jump only a little bit. Keep your body mostly still. Yeah. Well, so okay, so we so we have veteran jump roper, uh, novice jump roper, and somebody who just watched us jump rope. <laughs> uh, Katie, what do you think of this thing? Would you be interested in this? Also, but, it's sixty dollars. You didn't hear that part earlier. Oh, then Does that make double it even no more way. Annoying? Here's, the, here's <laughs> the last question: Do you think that your friends getting this rope and uploading their jump data to compete with you would that induce you to try it? No, because you can None share your jump works. data and have competitions with friends. I think that would be kind of cool, though. I don't have Facebook and I don't have this jump rope as a permanent thing, but if if I were trying to get back in shape and trying to keep count, what's the point of keeping count for yourself? Because someone else needs to see it. See, I'm more of a keeping count for yourself kind of person. The only reason I would compete with someone is if they were like standing right next to me. I couldn't, it wouldn't mean nothing to me to just like upload my number right. and then see my friends. It would have to be like they're standing right there and. Why are you competing you against anyone? Well, are you just competing against get, yourself? But to push you to get healthier. My younger sister and I have a, have a thing where she has to go to the gym three times a week or she owes me money. <laughs> uh, who's what do you, is there a way that? in which you owe her money? <laughs> yeah, if I don't go three times a week. But okay. 
like it's, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> she was the one who wanted to get into working out. Right. And so we set up this thing where every, if you don't, it's five bucks for every time you don't go to the gym. It works out pretty well um, for you. It, it did work out pretty well at the beginning. She's good at it now. Um, well, that's good. Then yeah. now it works out for everyone. Right. And if she wins, if she doesn't miss a single one in the first six months of the year before her birthday, I have to buy her something. I mean, I have to buy her a birthday present, anyway, but now it'll be a nicer one. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so wait, Katie would not buy this. No. Okay. My feeling is that, so what I like about this, just like about the sculpt, is that I like that it gives you a program. That's, that's actually valuable to me. But because it's just a jump rope, I don't think I could bring myself to spend $60 on it. Right. I think like I would download the app and then buy a speed rope or something and just use that for like do intervals or like tell me tell me do this jump rope program and have the timer and show me techniques or something. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if I could pay that much for the hardware part of this. Is my that's my problem with it. Right. I guess I am very very much like working out should be cheap and like if not free. So that's part of I think why I'm pushing against it. Um I wouldn't buy it either. Yeah. Because well, I have a, the jump rope I bought was $9. <laughs> it works fine. Yeah. Um, but as a motivational tool, if that's what you need and the app is there, then maybe 60 bucks is worth it. If you have, if, if you're getting into a workout. So that's our show. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Jesse Wright Mendoza. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Annie Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd really love to know what you think. And by the way, if you want to read more about how to get a garden going after a hard freeze, visit our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, don't forget that you can subscribe to the print and digital editions of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 for one year. I'm Kevin Dupsick. Thanks for listening.